Monday, July 17th. Welcome back to the Island College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me, and let me first apologize for no podcast last week. Truth is, I was at the Peach Jam in North Augusta, South Carolina, and there's a tiny window each day during which we rec- uh, during which we can record. And those windows last week clashed with games that I needed to attend at Peach Jam. Plus, the Wi-Fi at my hotel was awful, so there were a lot of obstacles in front of us. Consequently, we punted on the podcast last week and decided to just get together soon as I return home. Right now I'm home, I have returned, so we're here, and I wanted to start with uh, the biggest development to come out of Peach Jam, and that's my report from Friday afternoon about Marvin Bagley, the consensus number one uh, prospect in the class of 2018 who is considering reclassifying, graduating high school early, playing college basketball this season, and being in next year's, the 2018 NBA draft. The father has issued a non-denial, which essentially confirms the report, and I'll walk you through the details in just a moment. But uh, first, Matt Norlander, a simple question. If Marvin Bagley plays college basketball this season, how big of an impact does he make? If he picks Duke, Arizona, or even USC, or any or all of those teams, then the preseason number one? Well, no, but serious consideration to uh, i mean arizona is a clear yes although arizona doesn't have a scholarship open at the moment usc that won't be can, a problem by the way i'm sure it won't be uh usc uh has you could argue usc can go toe-to-toe with arizona in terms of its talent certainly in its starting five um it would be i think it would be hard for people to wrap their heads around marvin bagley going to usc and usc being a preseason number one team doesn't mean that they shouldn't be but I don't think that would be a surefire guarantee. But I, I will say that USC actually has a better case than Duke, which is bringing in the number two recruiting class. But the only player that's returning to Duke next season that has any sort of significant college experience is Grayson Allen. Marquise Bolden is the only other player, and he doesn't even qualify, in my opinion. He was largely lost on the floor last season. So Duke, while it's going to have a ton of incoming talent, and that, yes, should be rated undeniably as a top 15 team, in my opinion. Some people would say top 10. I, I, I find myself wavering with that somewhat, GP. Um, Bagley is immensely talented to the point where no matter where he were to go, if he were to go and cl- reclassify at this way late stage, any team that he joined would have to be considered um, a Final Four favorite. Uh, does that mean the clear-cut number one team in the country? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it, it would be a massive deal, in part because of his talent. Uh, we're talking about a guy, about a guy who is... 6'10", very athletic, plays both sides of the floor very well, can rebound, pass as well, handles well for his size. You look at his body, and similar to what I saw with Jason Tatum, just in terms of being a prep prospect, you look at him when he plays at the Peach Jam, and you're like, this dude can play in the NBA tomorrow based on his his overall um, you know, physical appearance and the tools that he has in his game. You look at Bagley, he does a lot of that right now. So him coming into college hoops would be a massive deal. In fact, I think he is so talented that he would have to be given serious consideration to be a preseason first-team All-American. And there are scouts that believe that had he been eligible for the 2017 draft, that he would have been the first pick over the likes of Fultz and Tatum and Lonzo Ball. So it would be huge. The matter is, can it happen? Will it happen? And at this stage, this is 
it's not unprecedented. Let's remember that Andre Drummond reclassified way late five years ago, ended up going to UConn um, before people thought he was going to go, basically a year ahead of schedule. So this does happen every every once in a while. But yes, it is certainly unusual to have a, a player this late into the game. We're now in mid-July saying, hey, I'm exploring reclassifying up an entire year. And yeah, it would it would certainly give college basketball a huge, huge freshman name in a class that's not as good as last year's, but it, but is solid, but by far he would be the best player. Just so people know, what you said is true. There are NBA people who think you could put Marvin Bagley at this point in the 2017 NBA draft with Fultz, Tatum, Lonzo Ball, everybody, and they would have taken him number one. You put him in the next NBA draft, 2018, with DeAndre Ayton, Michael Porter Jr., they would take him number one over both of them and everybody else. Obviously, his draft at this moment, the one he's projected to be in, is the 2019 NBA draft, and he's the clear-cut favorite to be the number one pick there. In fact, I, with all due respect to Zion Williamson and, and the other uh, elite-level prospects in, in the 2018 class right now, I think there's a pretty significant gap between Marvin Bagley and everybody else. This isn't a situation where you know, we could reasonably debate Michael Porter Jr. or DeAndre Ayton? Like, who's the better prospect? Who deserves to be number one? I think reputable recruiting services have, some have Porter, some have Ayton. Um, with, with 2018, and Bagley's in the 2018 class right now, I, I know my, my buddy Jerry Meyer, who's very good at what he does in terms of evaluating prospects. He has Zion Williamson, I believe, number one. And so I respect that, but I think he might be the only person who has anybody other than Marvin Bagley, number one in 2018. And and it's it's forever been that way. I, I've said this a couple of times. I think it's true. You tell me if it's not. Has anybody ever been rated number one in 2018 other than Marvin Bagley? Not that I can recall. I don't either. And if we want to qualify that basically as, you know, since the player was – post freshman year of right. high school going into that like I don't I don't think so and that's not the norm for no. people listening that might not follow recruiting that consistently what you have in any given year in any given class is basically anywhere from 2 to 4 maybe 5 guys if it's a weird class that you know from the time they finish their freshman year of high school until the time they enroll in college will battle and have that number 1 spot either in a 247 composite or you know, rivals will have it one, two, four, seven will have it another. ESPN will have it another. Um, Scout will have it in another way. So you usually have something of a debate because that's the way that, frankly, it should be in most years because players get better. These are high school kids. They can be a little inconsistent, and these rankings can basically go off of evaluation periods. So how they play in April, or how they play in July, or how they play late stage fall when they go to camps. So it's normal to be expected. With Bagley, it hasn't been that. I think it's two things. One, I do think he is really, really talented and really, really good. And I think that he'll be a very good NBA player. I just think what he does, GP, projects so clearly well to the next level. But also this class, it's not a terrible class. I don't think that whatsoever. It's just, it's not you know, good. it's not good. It, it's like a B minus class in my opinion. I, I don't think it's terrible. I, I mean, really don't. Like, I'd, say a C, I'd say it's a C class. Really? Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, I don't know. And uh, if, you take I, Bagley, I, if you take Bagley out of it, ugh. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, like, okay. like, if, if, yeah. if, like if you take Bagley out of this and then we've got the 2019 NBA draft without Marvin Bagley, like it, it starts to me to look like what's the draft where Anthony Bennett went number one? Like it starts no, to me to look like that. Yeah, it starts to me to look a little bit like that one. They're not 2012. Anthony Davis was 2012. 
So maybe 2013. Whenever Anthony, whenever that draft was oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. 2013, Bennett, you're right. Bennett, Bennett right, yeah. goes one, Oladipo goes two. It's like, what? You look back at that draft and it's like, ugh. Uh, I could, without Bagley, that's the way the 2019 looks. Unless, of course, one of those kids reclassifies and moves up, which is, is certainly possible because every year, we seemingly every year, we get something like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. let me. So uh, let's walk through it for a second. And by the way, this is exactly why you go to these events in the summer. Um, you know, you just you're around everybody. You hear things, and you're able to then talk to the people who are involved in these because, like. They were just eating lunch at the table next to you. Like they're sitting in the gym three seats down from you. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. Jerry Meyer, uh, you know, reported in, in what amounted to a notebook uh, sort of column, just in the middle of the notebook. It certainly wasn't like at the top of the column or a lead. He was just like, I, you know, starting to hear that that uh, that that Bagley could, you know, could reclassify. And that was really like I think he spent maybe two or three sentences on the whole deal. And so I read that and I'm like, well, let's, you know, I, I had heard, like, first off, I should say, the idea of Marvin Bagley reclassifying has been out there for like a year. It's just not something yeah. anybody's talked about recently. He's old for his class. He's already 18 years old. And so, and he's obviously immensely talented. Like, you could put him, like, he's been playing in the Drew League out in California and like getting 30 points on like NBA players. Like, he's ready to, he, it, it, there's nothing left for him in, in high school basketball. Um, I'm not saying he's bored because he doesn't play like he's bored at Peach Jam. He was awesome. He was intense. His team stinks, but that's got nothing to do with him. You know, this is one of those deals where Nike just put a team around him. You know, his father coaches it. And, you know, that that's happened before. But he doesn't play for a traditional EYBL power. Like, he doesn't play for the Oakland Soldiers. He doesn't play for, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the Chris Paul's team. He doesn't play for Team Penny. It's just a team basically built around him. They're not very good relative to the competition. So the team didn't get out of pool play, but, I mean, he was unbelievable. Like, if you went in there to, to go, I want to check out Marvin Bagley, you would have walked out saying, yep, that looks like the future number one pick of some draft. He was awesome. So um, the idea that he would reclassify has been out there for a long, long time. But then Jerry sort of just throws it out there in that notes column. And I'm like, well, I wonder, like, where are we on this? Like, and so it's pretty well established that the staffs that are recruiting him. And so, you know, if you've uh, hopefully uh, if you've been in this job as long as I've been in this job, you know, people every, you know, on every staff and everywhere. And, you know, you know, Nike people, you know, agents, you know, uh, you know, just people connected to this situation from every angle. And it becomes pretty clear to me. It's made pretty clear to me. Yes, this is these are these conversations are happening. Um, whether it will get done is still undetermined. But is it possible academically? I'm told yes. And is it something Marvin Bagley and his family want to do? I'm also told uh, yes. And and by the way, when Adam Zagoria, uh, a friend from uh, Fagran, uh, uh, Fan Rag Sports and uh, Zag's blog, uh, got the father on the phone, Marvin Bagley Jr., after my report on Friday afternoon and said, are you considering reclassifying? The quote was, you should probably ask CBS Sports. It seems like they know more than I know. More than I know. That's my answer. Ask CBS Sports, end quote. Well, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm CBS Sports. So if you want to ask me, you can. Go ahead, Norlander. Ask me. <laughs> you know what? You're on a roll, man. Just keep going. The answer is yes. Of course, they're reclassifying. And by the way, uh, the easy answer is no if it's not true, right? Hey, are you considering reclassifying? Yeah, it's a non-denial. Yeah, it's yeah. a non-denial. Like, it's like, ask, well, you know, they know more than I know. That that means I, I can't say no, so I'll just try to be dismissive. Like, I have a 14-year-old. He's getting ready to go to high school. If you ask me if he's 
considering reclassifying or were we considering reclassifying? I would just say no, because we never talked about it literally one minute. He's just going to be, you know, he's supposed to be a ninth grade. He's going to be a ninth grade. Uh, the answer is no. For most people, when the answer is no, they just say no. The fact that he wouldn't say no here means that the the, the report is the report. It's it's true. Um, and like I, subsequent to me reporting that on Friday afternoon, I've talked to more people involved who say, absolutely. Here's what he's doing now to try to do it. Here's who they're meeting with. Yes, it is academically possible. This is what he wants to do. So um, it becomes the big story at Peach Jam. Like it over, starts to overshadow everything else because this is not just... Like, I wrote earlier, like a couple days earlier, that Jonte Porter like essentially confirmed to me with a smile, yeah, I'm reclassifying as well. I'm going to play with my brother Michael Porter Jr. at Missouri. And that's awesome for Missouri, but it's really just awesome for Missouri. It's a Missouri story. I mean, it's great for the SEC too, I guess, but like, it doesn't change the landscape of college basketball or the landscape of an NBA draft. Uh, Marvin Bagley reclassifying changes the landscape of college basketball and the NBA draft because if he goes to Arizona... Whew, certainly they're ranked number one in the preseason. I mean, you talk about Alonzo Trier and you talk, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's you talk so about, overwhelming. You talk about a senior point guard with Alonzo Trier and Raleigh Hawkins and then a front court of DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley? I mean, you could have a situation, if that were to happen, you can realistically project that Arizona would have the top two picks in the 2018 draft. Yes. It could feasibly happen. Oh, I would. I, I, I don't know because, like, what do you think of Mike, uh, Michael Porter? What do you think of... Uh, the international prospect who everybody has in their top five, but yes, could reasonably go one to Marvin Bagley, DeAndre Ayton. So that team's number one, no matter what. And by the way, not to get off subject, but um, I talked to the Arizona staff uh, at Peach Jam about DeAndre Ayton specifically. They said he's been amazing. And like the knock on him, you know, was like, is he intense enough all the time? Does he get bored? And the way somebody on the staff explained it to me was, yes, that was a legitimate question before he got to Tucson because you'd watch him in the summer and just so much better than everybody else. And he's been so much better than everybody else forever. And not just from a skill perspective, but from a, like, he's just physically better than everybody else. He's bigger, stronger, quicker, better for all that stuff. So he could afford to not play hard because like he could still dominate you not playing hard, but they got him into a team. And again, this is like not going to, and I say this with all due respect, but not going to Washington where you're, surrounded by nobody like Markel Fultz did or going to NC State where you're surpr- surpr- uh, surrounded by nobody like Dennis Smith did. And by the way, look at Dennis Smith in the summer league now, just balling out completely. Why? Because he's surrounded by other great players and being pushed to be great. And he's been great. Um, it looks like that Mavericks killed it on that pick. So they said, listen, we got Aiden to Tucson and like we've surrounded him. Like there's structure. There's a culture in place. He's, he's around older guys who know how to win, who have won at a high level, and he's had to like really like fall in line with them. Like, yo, if you don't work, you don't belong here right now. And he's been, they said, excellent. Like, they, they think he's the number one pick in the draft, and, and they said he should be a dominant college basketball player uh, from day one. They didn't describe him as the best player in the country right now, but they do think he's the most talented. And so, um, back to Bagley. Uh, you know, you, you get him there, their number one team in the country. Easy, because I think they're the number one team without him. At Duke, you could make the argument, not clear-cut, not nearly as clear-cut as, as Arizona, but you could make the argument. And at, at USC, I know people who might not follow the sport closely, closely, closely understand, but like USC brings back everybody from a team that was pretty good. And and you add, you add Marvin Bagley to that. I've already got him, I think, top 10. So you add Bagley into that, they probably go up into the top five at least, and maybe... You could, you could rationalize putting them at number one. So Bagley's decision, if he's able to graduate and reclassify, it puts whatever team he's picking, because of the three teams he seems to be seriously considering, you know, in, in a position to win a national championship. 
he makes that big of a difference at a program that's already positioned to do nice things. And then it, it changes the top of the 2018 NBA draft because if he's if he's reclassified, he's eligible for it. He'll he'll be 19 by the time the draft starts, and a full NBA season will have passed in between his graduation date and the subsequent NBA draft. He'll be in that one, and he would probably be the number one pick. Like so, if you're the Boston Celtics right now, you're thrilled because what if Brooklyn sucks again? They win the lottery, have to give their pick to you. Now you can take Marvin Bagley right after you took Jason Tatum. I mean, like right after you, 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 you know, you took Jalen Brown. I mean, you really st- right after you signed Gordon Hayward, you got Isaiah Thomas. I mean, you're talking about being an Eastern Conference power for a long, long time. Bagley could be the the next piece in that. And if not him, again, it just makes the top of the draft deeper. Okay, so what? You don't get the first pick. Now you get the second. Two two weeks ago, you thought if you get the second, uh, that means you're not going to be able to get Michael Porter. Well, now maybe you do get him with the second because Bagley goes one. And then at the third, you thought, well, we can't get DeAndre Ayton because he'll be off the board. Well, now maybe he's available at three. So it just has a real and tangible impact on the top of the draft. And so um, this Bagley news is, is big news. Now, again, I'm told it's academically possible to do, but clear cut whether he'll be able to do it. Again, understand, just because it's possible doesn't like it's it is possible for me to go outside, run to a baseball field right now and hit a 350 foot home run. It doesn't mean that I would be able to do it on my first swing. So just because something's possible doesn't mean it's um, uh, achievable. It's a heck of an anecdote there, GP. Thank you. I think I would be able to do it on my first swing, but I didn't want to brag. So um, it's possible, but like we'll see. But either way, because I had somebody ask me this or, or suggest this to me. Well, it's very late in the calendar. Even if he can graduate early, can he get through the NCAA quickly enough? Like, And that, that's a legitimate thing because you know the NCAA sometimes takes a long time to certify uh, uh, somebody for freshman eligibility. And with Bagley, there's a lot of stuff there. You know, he's bounced around AAU teams. He's bounced around the country a little bit. There was like a like a, a couple of month period at one point where nobody really knows where he was, like what school he was in like a couple years ago. Something you can look it up if you want to. So there's a lot of stuff for the NCAA to tear through and like and, and, and look at before they would certify him for freshman eligibility. And that is obviously concerning for, let's say, Duke or Arizona or USC or anybody else who might enroll him at this late in the, in the calendar. But for Marvin Bagley, not as big of a deal. Because the motivating factor here, regardless of what anybody tells you, the motivating factor here is not to play college basketball this season. They would like to play college basketball this season. The motivating factor is to get eligible for the NBA draft in 2018. And the way you do that is to graduate early. And people think, or not, I know you don't, but some people think, well, you have to graduate and then spend a year in college. No, you don't. You just have to graduate before an NBA season starts and you're eligible for the next NBA draft. And so he's just got to get graduated from high school and he's eligible for the 2018 NBA draft, regardless of how the NCAA treats him. So he could very easily do what Hamadou Diallo did. I mean, what Hamadou Diallo, I should say, could have done, which is enter the NBA draft without ever playing in college. And so it will. if you find out that he's graduated early, we still, yes, have to go through the NCAA process. And it is possible he's not cleared to play by the season opener for whichever team he chooses. But the larger picture here, the larger motivating factor for Marvin Bagley and his family is to graduate early and get eligible for the 2018 NBA draft. And if they can do that, um, then that's basically mission accomplished. Yeah. Another option that could wind up being on the table is he's not eligible in time to start the season. 
similar to Diallo, who joined Kentucky midway through last season, um, would he be eligible for a second semester possibility? So you don't see Bagley at all in November and December, or the first time you see him is, say, you know, a December 27th or 28th kind of game. That wouldn't surprise me either. Um, the interesting thing there, though, is, and this is getting way ahead of it, but just to throw this out here now, um, if that's the situation that comes to pass, Bagley would then have an interesting option ahead of him because he could simply just choose not to play college, period. Um, and by doing that, um, you know, protecting his stock, so to speak. It wouldn't be the dumbest thing in the world because if he never stepped on a court again from this day, from this day right. forward, and was eligible for the 2018 NBA draft, probably be the number one pick in the draft. Probably. So that's just something to consider as well. So, you know, it is is certainly, uh, you know, it's it's the biggest headline in recruiting for this summer, without a doubt. Um, but we'll see where where we go going forward. And, yeah, I mean, the, the NCAA has to clear him um, after uh, a school would, would basically enroll him as well. So they, there are plenty of hoops still to jump through there. But, it, you know, it would be it would be quite a fun plot twist if that were to happen. But. We gotta we gotta turn a lot of corners before we get to that point. Sure. Um, for people who don't know, he's supposed to visit Duke this week. He might be on campus right now, and I didn't realize this until I was talking to the father. I believe on Thursday afternoon, because Marvin was meeting with the Marvin Marvin Bagley the third was meeting with uh, the media, and his father was monitoring because apparently what his father does monitors every word. Like it's it's funny. Like Bagley. He's awesome when you talk to him. Like he's thoughtful and and uh, smart, and he has, you know, he has things to say. Like I find him to be a, a really impressive young man. Obviously on the court, but also just sort of standing there on the court, dealing with um, an unusual number of, of media members in his face. Like that, uh, that wouldn't be simple for for every high school student in America. But he he handles it really well. Um, I had some people suggest, and I've been around him less than other people, like the recruiting analysts, but like if his father would just get out of the way and stop like trying to monitor every single thing and and cut off this interview and cut off that interview, like if his father would just like, hey, my son's old enough and mature enough to handle all this, um, like he, he, he really comes off as, as an impressive young man. But anyway, his father was there monitoring on Thursday, and... I don't want to say I struck up a conversation with his father, but his father was talking to somebody else and I was sort of there and then I joined in. But the dad's from Durham, North Carolina, and the grandmother still lives in Durham, North Carolina. So if you're looking for a recruiting advantage, like Duke might have it because of that. There are legitimate and real family ties, not only to the area, but literally to the city. Now, Marvin Bagley Jr. said, uh, we're going to pick a school for basketball, not for family. But it it, it, I, it is worth noting that the, the father is it grew like he graduated from like Durham High School or like whatever it was called at the time. Um, the grandmother still lives in Durham, so if that matters to them at all, it's at least one advantage that uh, uh, that Duke has heading into what should be a pretty intense uh, recruitment uh, elsewhere at Peach Jam. Yeah, I mentioned I talked to Jonte Porter. Porter, he was interesting. Like I think it's been well known that he's probably going to reclassify you know I, I got with him on I think it was Wednesday night and I was just like listen everybody assumes this is what you're doing like is that a safe assumption and he sort of smiled and laughed he's like yeah that's a safe assumption so I imagine you'll get a, um, a, a formal announcement from either Jonte or Missouri um, 
you know, at some, you know, like some some point soon, probably when the paperwork gets certified by the NCAA or or when he's formally admitted to to Missouri. But that's going to happen, and so that's another five star prospect that's going to be in uh, Missouri's class of 2017. His older brother, obviously Michael Porter Jr., who is um, you know, uh, for some people, the number one prospect in the entire class. And then, of course, they got Jeremiah Tillman as well, who's a, another top 50 prospect. So, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to win when you're relying simply on freshmen, unless they are all like elite level freshmen, like something Duke does or Kentucky does. But Missouri's got a chance to be in the NCAA tournament if they get Jonte Porter. And I should say, because uh, Jonte and Marvin Bagley are, are two top 10, 15 players in the country in their class who are both trying to reclassify and, and enter college a year early, but for totally different reasons. With Marvin, it is genuinely to try to get into the NBA draft next year. I don't think that's Jonte's motivation at all because he doesn't necessarily project as an obvious first-round pick, one-and-done guy. For Jonte, um, it's just that you only get – there's one window here for you to play with your brother in college because Michael Porter Jr. is doing one year at Missouri and then going straight into the lottery of the NBA draft. So if you want to play with your brother, you got to do it now. And that seems to be the motivating factor there. So you got two guys. I thought this was at least somewhat interesting trying to do the same thing, but for vastly different reasons. Missouri will be a top seven team in the SEC uh, if and when Porter reclassifies. And that's a massive jump from a team that won, what, eight games last season. And yeah, I think with Jonte in the mix, Missouri fans should have an expectation to reach the NCAA tournament with the talent that they're going to have. Certainly, they're going to be a very interesting team. I'll have a, for those listening perhaps on Monday, uh, check Tuesday on CBSSports.com. We'll be posting our final. I've been doing some offseason conference catch-up type posts with headlines and power rankings and stuff. So I'll have Missouri ranked in there. I would think off the top of my head as you were talking, I was looking. I think Missouri about seventh is where I'd put them. I think that's the safe spot. Not too high, not too low. But yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's it's certainly you know Peach Jam brought out those two very uh, worthwhile, interesting headlines, and for Jonte to play with his brother, I think that's a a very earnest motivation, and I think it could be a, a lot of fun there overall. And Mizzou, you know, hopefully their fans don't <laughs> don't put too much pressure on this team. But obviously, after such you know a rough run in the Commanderson era, now they're gonna they're gonna want dividends immediately. Just if you can. Temper those expectations and just accept that, you know, 18 to 21 wins and getting into the tournament period is enough. I think you'll be satisfied. It'll be a it'll be a big turnaround this upcoming season. One other thought on the Peach Jam, and maybe this is a little inside basketball because most people listening to this podcast never actually go. They just read about it and, and, and listen to people like us talk about it. But um, it is an unbelievable event that is run um, uh, exceptionally. And the people in Augusta, like, really – uh, uh, care about it and 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 do everything they can to make it go off without a hitch every year. Um, I can't imagine moving it, but it's gotten too big for that building. Like you can't like it's it's packed. Yeah. It's packed. Like you you know because you've been there many many times. Now for the night sessions, unless you are in a gym, for people who don't understand, it's all under one roof. Four gyms, four courts, I should say, under one roof. And so everybody parks at the same place, everybody enters through the same doors, and then you go into whatever gym where you want to watch the game. And t- typically there's um, there's three games in the mo- three sets of games in the morning. So you go like a, a 9 a.m. start, a 10.30 start, and then a noon tip. And then the 16 and unders play in the middle of the afternoon. And then at night you come back and you've got a 6 o'clock uh, 
four games, 7.30, four games, 9 o'clock, four games. And literally any court you walk on at any time, you could just stumble in blindly. And there's a future, probably a future NBA player on the court. I mean, it's just every team has one. Or, or at least has, uh, certainly I should I can say this. There's a future high major, impactful player, somebody you're going to read about for years on every court for every game, at least one. And I do think probably that at least one NBA player on every, because like you go in one court, there's Marvin Bagley, go to the other court, there's Bull Bull, go to the other court, there's, um, you know, just, they're everywhere. So this has become a place where college basketball fans come, certainly ones from the area, to see the next great things. You see a lot of Kentucky fans, you see a lot of Duke fans. And it's like, unless now, unless you are in a court for the game before the game you want to see, right? you can't get into that court. So, like, if Marvin Bagley's playing at 9 o'clock on court three, you better be on court three inside in the, in the stands by, you know, by 745. Uh, and you better hope that the team, the guy, the team playing at 730, either team, doesn't have Bull Bull or uh, Darius Garland or another high-level guy because then you can't get into that one. And so it's become a situation where it's it's star-studded. Oh, here's the other thing people do. They come to see who's going to show up. Like this week, just for random reasons and different reasons, Shaquille O'Neal's there. He's there because his son's playing, but he's there. Shaq's walking around the building. Um, Penny Hardaway's there because he coaches a team. Chris Paul's there because he coaches a team. Kenyon Martin was there, I'm assuming, because he has a son playing, but I, I, I don't know that, but like he, he was there. Um, Kevin Durant was there for like some sort of Nike deal. Uh, Markel Fultz was there. Tyus Jones was there. Um, that's what you get like Tyus Jones' little brother plays. So you get a lot of um, older brothers. Of play. Like it's, it's interesting. Like you got a lot of little brothers playing uh, from of guys that we know. And then every coach in America is there. Here, hey, there's Mike Krzyzewski. Here's, there's John Calipari. There's Bill Self. There's Tom Izzo. There's Rick Pitino. There's Roy Williams. And so you get this fan base, these fans that come out, which is it's awesome. It creates this awesome scene. But it's like, there's nowhere to park. It, you can't get in the gym. Like, I, I believe there's construction on some new gyms there that they might be able to move into. But it is it has certainly outgrown the building that Peach Gym has forever been in. Again, that doesn't matter to most people. But I, for anybody who's ever been, it's just the event is bigger and better than ever. But the, the bigger part <laughs> makes it complicated in that relatively small building. Also, random dinner on Friday night, you expect to bump into Kevin Durant, Marco Fultz, Shaquille O'Neal, any sort of basketball person. Like if you're in a bar and there's Jamie Dixon, that's normal. If you're in a restaurant and there's Jim Beheim, that's normal. Guess what we bumped into at the bar, sit by himself on Friday night at a place called Frog Hollow. Shout out to Frog Hollow. Also shout out to Devin Downey. Shout out to Chester, South Carolina. Shout out to Terry MF and Teagle. So we're at the Frog Hollow. Guess who's sitting at the bar by himself drinking a martini? Sports or no sports connection? Not sports. That's the only thing that made it interesting. Actor or no? Or a musician? Not an actor. Was it a musician? No. Political reporter. Uh, uh, political reporter. I'll say, I'm going to say Chuck Todd. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Chuck Todd's predecessor. Uh, Gregory? David Gregory was sitting at the bar. I was like, what? So like, we're sitting there. It's me and a couple media guys and a couple coaches. And this, this place, by the way, if you're ever in Augusta and you want like a nice meal, Frog Hollow is like really good. Get the pork chop. So we're sitting there. I sound like John Rothstein now. So we're sitting there at the table and a guy gets up from the bar and he walks by us because he's clearly going to the bathroom. And I'm like, 
what in the world is David Gregory doing here? And so my initial thought was like, he must just be here playing golf at Augusta National, right? Seems like the type of thing he might do. Um, I went to his Twitter feed. It seemed like he might have been there working on a Kevin Durant story for CNN or somebody else. Um, because Durant was there and he met with this and that, whatever. And there was a lot of Kevin Durant stuff on his Twitter feed. So maybe sometime soon you'll see a David Gregory report on Kevin Durant. I don't know. But anyway, we saw David Gregory. That was kind of random. But the whole thing is it's an awesome event. Um, but it's gotten – it's outgrown that building. Like it's, it's – It's a rec center. The thing is, so, yeah, it's a rec center. So for most of the year, it's probably got, you know you – know, decent business and stuff i mean there's a there's a track upstairs where like oh here the track like, uh, like, uh, okay. like senior citizens go to like walk yes. around the track and work out like it's so, just one of those kind of deals so you the, tra- know? So. the track upstairs okay fans are also allowed up there and you can sort of like stand on a rail and overlook the courts and look down and watch the games those are those are four or five deep now like like yeah, I, like a man my height i walked upstairs at one point because i could not bobo and and uh sharif o'neill were playing shaq's kid and I couldn't get in the gym. Like, you just can't get in the gym. It's like the gym's closed. It's locked. It's like over capacity. There's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere to stand. So I say, okay, I'll go upstairs. I go upstairs. I can't see anything. I can't see over anybody. <laughs> so, like, so like I'm like, what do I do now? So I just, like, sort of go sit in the lobby and, like, text message people. I don't know what to do. Like, you do get caught in situations where there's not um, – you don't have access to the games that you want to have access to. So I don't know how Nike goes about – uh, fixing that. I'm not advocating like you need to have a roped off media section because that sounds like the media bitching about the media and I'm not interested in doing that. But it is um, it's an issue. It has changed. Used to you could walk and I, by used to I mean five years ago. Yeah. You could walk into, oh, yeah. You could walk into any gym. And if you wanted to sit next to Mike Krzyzewski and watch the best high school players in the country, you could do that because the gym was mostly empty other than college coaches and parents. And like there was probably a seat right next to Mike. Well, now it's it's coaches, parents, but then like just basketball fans. Like it is filled up, yeah. filled up every single day, every single night. And so it's a different deal now. Yeah, and uh, real quick, and then we'll move on right. to uh, I think the thing I wrote. But um, yes, you're right. I, I mean, this was first time in seven years. I didn't go to Peach Jam. I'll go to Under Armour this week in Philly, and then GP and I will both be in Vegas um, the week after. So we're going to have some actually better than normal coverage than we've had in recent years in terms of more events. But... I remember the first few years I went to Peach Jam, it was very much it's, – it's funny you mentioned Krzyzewski because the very first year I ever went to Peach Jam, Krzyzewski sat down next to me. I was talking with Seth Davis, and that was kind of a surreal like, man, this, this Peach Jam thing really is something else. Like this is just kind of bizarre that I got Krzyzewski sitting next to me. It was like the first day I'd ever covered Peach Jam, and it was not nearly as busy. The past two years that I had gone, it started getting really cramped in there because what's also happened is you've got seven different – media companies shooting videos for YouTube compilations. So yeah. they're taking up spots on the baseline. There have been more and more media members that have gone because, frankly, the coverage is totally warranted. So, I mean, and I remember talking with Goodman a few years ago. He remembers Peach Jam in like 2005 when basically it was like four media people were in the building and like no one was there. So it did serve a perfect purpose back then. The one question I had for you was I did read about how they were – doing construction so is there construction on the actual site like are they expanding the building here did you see anything around that or is it a different part of the i guess that center altogether because they've got baseball fields and tennis courts was it in that general area in the general area but not connected to the current building and so and and by the way i didn't like go talk to a north augusta official about it it was just the 
the word from college basketball coaches was they're building new buildings that are bigger and, and should be able to better accommodate. But I don't know that for certain. But I do know for certain there's like real construction going on because I saw that with my own eyes. I think ideally um, what they should try and do, I don't know if this is the plan, but this will, this is what would make the most sense to me. So you're building a new building, one or two courts with legitimate seating, have all of your highlighted feature games there. The, the games are going to clearly draw the most people. You need to funnel them into that, and that way you can still have you know, the appeal of the Peach Jam with, with the, the rec center there and, and have the smaller games that aren't going to have as much draw Right there, that's probably how you get the best of both worlds. But the other anyway. thing I would I would recommend, uh, not that ESPN needs my advice, but um, they are you know they they are obligated not obligated but they're committed to to televising the championship game of Peach Jam, which they did yesterday afternoon, and so you're sort of at mercy of the bracket and how it unfolds because the truth is, you want Marvin Bagley on TV, you know you want Bull Bull on TV, but neither one of those teams made it out of pool play. Team Penny was the most talented team there. They had three top 20 class of 19 kids on it. Didn't make it out of pool play. And so what I would do in the spirit of like show, because I know the kids care about the championship and they should. Like it's a legitimate like championship that you get a trophy and it means you accomplish something real because they are playing real basketball down there. I know AAU, the, the quote AAU has a bad reputation. All, all they do is run up and down the court and dunk, and they don't care if they win or lose. That's not what EYBL is. It's not what PGM is. Those kids are playing. They're running sets. They're trying to win. They're guarding hard. Um, they, Nike's done a good job of, of making winning um, the most important thing. But, but what I would do is I would either televise the championship game and then also an all-star game or just the all-star game. Because I think the best thing that Peach Jam could do in terms of television is have a game on Sunday afternoon where you get Marvin Bagley and Darius Garland and Bull Bull and uh, and and Shaq's kid, and then you got Shaq sitting courtside. That's good television. Um, you know, you get DJ Jeffries and 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 uh, James Wiseman off of Team Penny. Like, like putting the like most talented guys on a court on TV in the middle of the summer, like I think would would just be better television. Because the truth is, like, uh, how about this? I went to Peach Jam. I saw all the teams. Right now, as we're talking, I don't know who won it. Do you know who won it? I don't, but I wasn't around Sunday to watch, so right. I had no. Yeah, so up. like, so like the winning thing doesn't matter to the to the casual viewer right like for sure like seeing the stars on tv like seeing marvin bagley on tv particularly after reports came out on friday about him reclassifying would have been great tv but uh, that's not the way uh they do it so whatever i don't care let them figure it out um all right i do want to uh, wrap up with this on uh, i don't know if it was friday but certainly late in the week uh, yes yeah, friday uh, friday the NCAA announced that they are changing the team sheets that the selection committee uses in an attempt to uh, provide better information better data and context to what a college basketball team actually does from November through March um, as it relates to uh, earning an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. You know about that. You wrote about that. For the uh, a person who doesn't quite grasp what happened on Friday or what the NCAA announced on Friday, walk me through it. All right. Let's take a quick stroll here. Um, okay. So the NCAA has been making legitimate strides toward bettering its selection and seating process. In my opinion, over the past seven or eight years, that progress to me has been better than what we had seen 
basically from the totality of like the late 70s until just past the turn of the century. So the NCAA, while we often criticize selections and seedings, rightfully so, the people making these decisions are trying to do better and they are listening and they and they want to make this uh, a modern process. So with that thinking in mind, the selection committee met in Chicago last week to basically discuss if any changes were going to come it formally to their selection and seating process going in their constitution, so to speak, that had to be discussed and voted on last week. The big change was alterations to the team sheets. Now, the writing was on the wall with this when the NCAA met with guys like Ken Pomeroy, Jeff Sagarin, uh, ESPN's Ben Alomar. They met in January to discuss, OK, here's what we're doing what do we have right? What do we have wrong? What is maybe in the middle? How can we adjust? When the NCAA basically had that meeting, we knew changes were going to come. With this, the team sheet and the concept, and hardcore listeners of this podcast certainly know what this is, and we've talked about this plenty before, but just a quick refresher. When the committee meets every March, they have a, a big screen on the wall, right? It's, it's, a, it's a projection, and when they want to talk about teams, A versus B versus C or A versus B or whatnot, Let's bring up their team sheets. The team sheets show the record and how they've done home, road, and neutral, and how they've done against teams rated 1 to 50, 51 to 100, so on and so forth. But the problem with that, it was all not just RPI-based, but the cutoffs were obviously a bit arbitrary. The difference between beating the 47th team and the 51st team, it's basically negligible. So... There needed to be some tweaks to the team sheets. They have made those tweaks, but they have not gotten rid of the RPI just yet, and here's why. The, RP, they want, the NCAA wants to institute a new metric, okay? But they want to make sure that the metric that they're going to use is going to last for the foreseeable future, and I would define that as 15 to 25 years. They do not want to have to have a situation in 2027 where they've got to rebuild the ship all over again. So this upcoming season... They are going to, or at least they plan to basically run uh, different composites because metrics do different things. Something like KenPom is predictive, whereas something like RPI looks at purely what you've done. So there's an argument out there, and this is getting way down to into it, and I won't get into too much minutia, but there's an argument that basically you want to separate composites between predictive and non-predictive because mixing both of those doesn't yield the best and most accurate kind of ranking, so to speak. I mostly buy into that, but not totally, but that's another conversation for another time. So they're going to run different composites and see how they compare and, and basically perform against what they currently use and KenPom and Sagra and all that stuff. They're also in the process of trying to come up with their own metric, something separate from Ken Palm, Sagarin, whatever. But in that kind of mindset, they are basically reaching out to really smart people at really smart universities. Um, uh, I've, I've been told that someone at MIT has been, in, you know, they've contacted uh, someone there to really look at, you know, what can be done here. And they're serious about making this better. But that is not going to come into play until the 2018-2019 season at the earliest, in part, because the coaches had already done the majority of their scheduling for this upcoming season, so they didn't want to tweak that. So now the coaches know, hey, going forward, just be aware that the RPI is, is basically not what you should be building your schedules around going forward. Now, there has been criticism or at least some blowback that, well, you've changed the team sheets and now you've got you know, road games, neutral games, top 75 games uh, against teams on the road. This was also changed after the schedules were made. To that, there's not a lot to stand on because, honestly, 
the schedule is what it is, and, and you still got to see what these teams are going to be, GP. You got to see how good they end up being and not end up being, because what your schedule looks like on October 15th versus the reality of what it actually becomes on March 1st, obviously it changes. Think about how much it changes in an NFL season when you're looking at a 16-game schedule and you think, oh, that's a win, that's a loss, that's a win, and then you see what teams actually end up being good and not as good. So real quick here, the t- there are four columns on a team sheet. Now... Home games uh, that you play against top 30 teams in the RPI will show up in the same column against road games against teams in the top 75 of the RPI. And that has been a a call. There's been calls to make that balance for a long time and make that switch because, in truth, the mathematics show that beating the 68th team on the road can be just as difficult as beating say the 23rd ranked team on your home floor so the committee is taking more weight into road games and to a certain extent neutral games but road games is a big deal if you want the how if you want the details of how that all breaks up it's in my story on cbssports.com i presume gp will send a link to it when this podcast post goes live so that's the big deal there um there are going to be more changes that come that's just the biggest thing and my big picture is this is probably going to help the mid-major because it's going to account for more credit for road and neutral games and because of that i believe under this system monmouth would have made the tournament two years ago i think illinois state would have had a really solid case and a stronger resume with these dividing lines last season so there's been some question about, okay, if that's the case, obviously these big-time schools and big-time coaches aren't going to, you know, necessarily going to be trying to be scheduling all these schools, um, and they might try and shun them even further. I do not believe that's going to be the case because I actually think with the new composite or a new NCAA metric that's also going to try and level the playing field just a bit here so that you can't have these power conference schools, which are already at such a strong advantage, continue to have a further advantage because the fact of the matter is the NCAA does obviously like having these big schools in the tournament, but it does not like the fact that over the past four or five years, the number of at-large bids going to schools outside the you know the power five football schools plus Big East or AAC, they've been dwindling GP. So that's a long-winded way of kind of explaining what's happened. It is a good thing. It's a progression forward. The big question now is, what metric will replace the RPI and the team sheets a season from now? We are not closer to that answer, but I am highly confident that within the next 10 months, we will have that answer, and those changes will be instituted for the 2018-2019 season, and that is good for the tournament and its selection process. I wish there were a website, and considering we work for a website, maybe it should be ours, but that would replicate team sheets in real time. In other words, I wish on uh, January 17th, there was a place you could go to look at uh, Purdue's team sheet as the exactly the way the selection committee would look at it at that moment. No, no, right. web- no website breaks it down like that, does it? No, the NCAA does have team sheets available, um, but it's not in real time and it gets closer uh, to like the actual selection process. So yeah, I agree with you. Like the way Kim, the way Kim Palm updates every morning or every night. I wish there was a place where exactly what the NCAA tournament selection committee's team sheet is going to look like on selection Sunday. Right. There's a place where you could go look at what those look like at this moment. That'd be ultimately yeah. Be ultimately, the NCAA would have to be the the entity to I think to facilitate that because it it is its data. Um, but I I agree with you. Now, granted, the the people that would look at that, it's going to be 
0.2% of a college basketball audience and no, basically know, 90, it, it, 98% it, it, of the media, but it would definitely be a, a very helpful tool. Right. And it's still a good idea because the, the selection committee is working toward more transparency. They understand that having interest in the selection process is a major part of the college basketball season as it is. So this is, I know it's a middle of the, of the summer headline and honestly, this will probably be forgotten by a lot of people by the time we get to the season and then readdressed. Oh yeah. Hey, remember that thing that happened last summer when we get to the end of February, early March, but GP, it, it is a significant step forward. People have been calling for a change to the team sheet for years. So this is the first step. Consider it like phase one, and then phase two should go into effect next season. I can't wait. Remember, you can subscribe to the On College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I mean that sincerely. I'm headed to Las Vegas, not this week, but next week. Um, and so what we will plan on doing is after Norlander get back, gets back from the Under Armour event in Philadelphia, but before I go to Las Vegas to uh, attend all of the different events out there, uh, we'll sit back down uh, and do another podcast perhaps on Monday or Tuesday of next week. So uh, keep a lookout for that. Until then, take care.